0: I'm Fred McClymans, he's Howard Hecht, and you are listening to The Coil. On today's edition of The Coil, we're talking about structure and agency. Agency, well, that's the ability we all have to make a decision, and in fact, the freedom we have to make a decision. Structure, on the other hand, well, those are the things that guide our decisions, that shape them, and in many ways, constrain them. Later in today's program, we'll be talking with noted AI analyst and educator, Adrian Bowles. But before we get to that, Howard, welcome to the show today. Thanks, Fred. Great to be here. Howard, we've had a number of good conversations about everything from wearable computing to privacy and big data. And one of the themes that I think we're, we're seeing recur here is is the idea that there are a lot of systems in place today, uh, not just social systems, but a lot of technical systems in place that are helping us in our everyday lives. And we've been talking about the, the effect of that in terms of big data and the data that we're throwing off. But I think it's worth going back and taking a look at how some of these systems might be constraining our decisions uh, if you think about it, uh, you know, a, a good system out there such as, you know, a traffic management system that may help the flow of traffic within a city, well, that's also limiting our choices. We may be more efficient, but at the price of potentially free will to make a decision one way or the other.
1: Fred, it's become increasingly obvious to me as I get older that Nietzsche was not a systems architect. Unfortunately. Our ability to exert free will in any situation is being diminished regularly by the sort of surreptitious advent of, of all kinds of decision support systems. Let's face it, Fred, social media is a decision support system. I mean, we now make decisions on whether we like people that we've never met or not by negative portrayals or positive portrayals that we see on social media.
0: No, very true. Um, I think there's, a, uh, there's an increasing tendency today to you know, to rely upon decision uh, support tools or or just on the crowd to help us make decisions. Uh, But I think what many people don't realize there is as we place more reliance upon these systems, we think we're doing ourselves a favor, but those systems themselves, they have inherent constraints and they can you know, very directly shape the amount of information we have available to us or potentially the time that we have to make a decision uh, and force us, whether we like it or not, into a set of predetermined outcomes, sort of well, a they, self-reinforcing yeah. channel.
1: Well, they're all all deterministic because they're all limited. They're not presenting you with every possible option and outcome. They're presenting you with a limited set. And let's face it, people don't have the the wherewithal or or even the desire to examine most of these decisions to the degree that they might even warrant or, or certainly that are possible.
0: So are there particular areas that, uh, that you've become concerned about? I know, like I mentioned a few minutes ago, we've talked about a number of different uh, you know, technologies and um, everything from, from business models to you know, technical models that are shaping us today. Is there anything that you're particularly concerned with where you see our freedom of choice being you know, so constrained uh, to the point where uh, it's, it's now become detrimental in a significant way?
1: Well, I'm very concerned about a lot of these things being used in healthcare. So let's let's take take a quick step backwards. Let's look at financial decisions, creditworthiness, et cetera. Um, those things used to be done, you know, at your local bank, being with a decision made by someone that you probably had a banking relationship with, or at least someone who could you know research uh, what was you know moderate available data based on your work history, your your income, uh, your assets, and make a decision. Now, everything that you do that affects your transactional credit score, and some things that, by the way, are not necessarily what you would think directly related to your credit worthiness, um, such as medical claims that you may have made, accidents that you may have had in a vehicle or otherwise, uh, legal cases, all conspire to make up your credit score and all are being used to to make that decision about you very near instantaneously
0: don't forget the idea of social information being used in that category as well. Uh, I you do know, the ability to that. look at your credit score <laughs> and look at the credit scores of your friends or of the behavior of your friends, what they, uh, you know, kind of put forth into the social realm. I mean, that can be used against you and uh, we've seen situations where that seems to be the case. And let's
1: face it right now you have the ability, um, in big data, um, brokerage environments to actually purchase information based on people that are based on a disease, malady, or affliction that they might have. And that's currently right now being used for marketing purposes. So if you're incontinent, I know that I can sell you incontinence products. If you have diabetes, I can sell you diabetes supplies. But what's also happening is there's nobody that really has told you other than you know, other than the law, which people always seem to find a way of getting around, ways of not being using these things to conspire in medical underwriting.
0: There are a lot of systems out there uh, where we've given control over to uh, technology. Uh, you know, traffic lights, as, as an example. Um, they're there. We know they're there. You, they, you really they want to drive faster, don't I, you? I, I really do. So, um, and, and that, by the way, will be, get held against me in the next uh, review for my insurance policy, uh, uh, for my automobile, I'm sure. <laughs> but uh you know I think there are there are two ways that we can look at this. The first is where we've put a system in place that we know is constraining our decision in in some way. But the second is sort of a a more more difficult to define overwhelming amount of information that may also limit our decisions and we touched on this when we talked about the crowd issue earlier, where we source uh, you know suggestions where we're going to go for dinner, what kind of a movie we're going to see. I think there's a, there's a greater area there where because of our addiction to social media, because of our addiction to information in general, it's very likely that we're being flooded with so much that all that really gets through to us is the peak. We don't see you know, the, uh, the 20% on either side of the curve that may be of tremendous value to us that we're just simply not getting. And that's different from you know, say an HR program that says all of the incoming resumes will go through our, you know, our software and we will keyword and we will rank them and do all the appropriate searching to figure out who should we call back. I mean, that's, that's a particularly bizarre situation in and of itself because I think they really miss a lot of people who may not have a particular skill at writing resumes. But think about the crowd. Are we really susceptible to the noise? Of course we are. I mean, let's face it. But also that
1: that has to do with our own ability, our own decision to allocate very limited time and very little limited resource of our personal resource to making that decision. I mean, let's let's face it. Where am I going to have dinner tonight? Where am I going to make a reservation for dinner? It is a relatively time limited decision in most people's world. Unless it's a very special occasion, you basically say, "I'm hungry for Indian food. I'm going to go look up on my favorite site." You know the, the top-rated Indian restaurants, and I will decide thusly if I'm in a place where I don't know the answer or don't have a, a particular favorite. The challenge you look at is that um, sites such as Yelp have tried to overcome the, the anonymity of that information by saying, here are, here are reviewers. You can learn whether your views align with these reviewers you know, in, over time, and you can, you can trust these reviewers. And that's, that's one of the ways, and let's face it, it's been very successful in that very simple process of saying, here's someone whose tastes align with yours. You can now trust them to review restaurants that you might like.
0: Right. But, you know, Howard, if we trusted reviewers, we would never have had the success that we had with Star Wars. Star Wars, if you remember, when it came out back in the mid-70s, was panned. It, from a, a critical perspective, it, it got very poor reviews. It was the crowd that stepped up and said, let's go see this.
1: A lot of, of very horribly reviewed films are very successful. Wedding Crashers, um, you know, the... I uh, uh, yeah, didn't like just, that one. Well, I, actually, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to say it out loud, Fred. I wasn't a big Star Wars fan and still I'm not. Shh, don't tell anyone. Well,
0: all. I am more of a Star Trek fan myself. Me too. Truth be told. There we
1: go. Okay, so you know, so we wear our geek badges of honor, you know, truly, uh, you know, consistently with
0: our error. <laughs> we we do indeed. We do indeed. So one of the areas where I think the Yelp model doesn't work well, that is is personally a bit difficult for me, and I know it's difficult for a lot of businesses, uh, is best exemplified by Facebook. We have so many friends in our feed, we can't possibly keep track of all of them. According to Facebook. So, what do they do? They come up with great little algorithms that try and anticipate what you will be interested in. As a result, there are things that my friends post to Facebook that I never see. And for me, personally, that's a little bit disturbing because that's different than than Twitter where I really expect a raw feed and if I miss something, I miss it. You know, I may go back and try and find it later that's fine. That's an expectation. It works the way I expect it to work. Facebook, however, does not. And for individuals and marketers, I think that's becoming a bit of a problem. We're missing things that we expect to see. You know, Fred, I, I, see, I see your point, but I think the problem is, is
1: that the noise level, you know, a lot of things that new, you know, new users of Twitter, in fact, this is really funny, in Twitter's IPO filing, you know, it says, you know, warning, new users may find the service very disconcerting and difficult to use. Um, And it's it's true. I mean, jumping into Twitter is like, you know, jumping into multi directional fire hoses. And it it has that feeling if you've never been there before. And it can be not just confusing, but downright disorienting. And I think Facebook is always trying to preserve um, its go to status as a place for uh, a sharing of information. So it's it's their excuse. But it also it also does keep the uh, the friendly vibe going, which is something that they've been after. So I think it's it was a business decision in a lot of ways, and of course, let's face it, it's really a way to cram more ads in your in your timeline.
0: Well, sure, bottom line, you know, realistically, if Facebook does become like Twitter,
1: it's doomed. Uh, What's interesting, though, is is that Facebook is, you know, it is uh, it's unfortunately growing old with its demographic, which is the thing that they never dreamed that
0: would happen, but it but it is a great subject for another edition of The Coil. But When we come back, we're going to be talking with uh, Adrian Bowles, and we'll put the question to him. What does this really mean? What decisions are we giving up, and is there hope for humanity? On this segment of today's Coil, we're joined by Adrian Bowles. Adrian, welcome to The Coil.
2: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So, Adrian, uh, we're talking here about uh, structure and agency. uh, And before we really get into that, I'd like to just kind of get a a lay of the land here with uh, the state of applied or narrow AI systems. Um, What's the state of decision-oriented AI today?
2: Well, you know, when you, you narrow it down to the... Decision making AI, you tend to start to look at things that are either embedded in um, other systems. So, you know, if you go back uh, historically with AI, we used to say things like uh, once it becomes useful and pervasive, we forget that it's even there. So, uh, there's a lot of um, decision support that would fall under the general category of AI 20 years ago that we don't even think about as AI today. But I think that if you want to look at the, the real state of the art and kind of pushing um, where we're going into the next generation, uh, it's no secret that I've spent a lot of time looking at um, the IBM Watson system, which is, uh, was designed to be, after Jeopardy, uh, an assistant to people making complex decisions and in particular things like uh, diagnoses. And so we start to see a lot of things in that area where there's a human that has to make a decision and you're getting support, you're getting alternatives, you're getting, um, in the case of the systems that I, I'm most familiar with today, um, probabilistic rather than deterministic results. So you get multiple answers and then it's up to the person to, to make a choice. Um, th- that's basically, uh, I think, the, the edge of the envelope, if you will, today, where you can look at a lot of data uh, certainly more than a human could look at in a reasonable amount of time. Filter it, present it in a way that um, that the person will still make the decision.
1: So Adrian, one of the things that I've been concerned about is the individuality of individual decisions that are shaped by all of these decision support tools. Um, I guess it's it's a combination question. The pervasive nature of the tools... And what I see, and this is purely empirical at this point, but I see a, a pretty dramatic drop-off in the inductive logic of humans. And I'm wondering what you <laughs> see out there.
2: One of the things that I'm spending a lot of time with right now is looking at something that I think is a fundamental problem when we're dealing not only with AI or um, you know thinking machines or machine learning or cognitive computing, but just human problem solving in general is that we deal with so much um, bad information that when you're dealing with things at a, an individual level, if the individual is bringing, is providing the context for a decision, uh, I, I was just working on a, a video on this uh, recently and one of the things I looked at was, one of my favorite sayings is, you know it, it ain't what you don't know that causes problems, it's what, what you know that ain't so and you get into that with um, automating decision support at an individual level, the individual may have perfect information or perfect, um, perfect data and then putting it in their context with information that is less perfect, you're still gonna come up with a bad answer. Um, so I, I think that the goal of supporting individual decisions uh, needs to include helping people to understand not only what's true, but what's true uh, in context.
0: So we're getting here into the area of, uh, of perception. Mm-hmm. And, Absolutely. Uh, I'd love to get your take on uh, examples where you think you know, individual perceptions uh, haven't really quite met the realities of decision tools or a vendor perceptions of the marketplace, where we have disconnects.
2: Yeah, I think that's... You know that's a, a fascinating question um we had someone speak at our local library recently about uh, google glass for example and it was fascinating to me to watch comments uh online from people that are, attended the talk saying oh this is great you know i can ask any sort of reasonable question and by using google glass i'm going to get the answer out of google and it's like um, it's like having a watson in your pocket and so there's this at the consumer level, people don't really understand the difference between, say, a Google search, uh, Siri, and a Watson. And, and, you know, I don't expect them to. We haven't done a good job of educating the public about what's out there. But I think what that does is it creates, along with the um, things like all the news recently about NSA, capturing information about us. Uh, There was a thing in the paper this week about uh, Dick Cheney disabling the Wi-Fi on his pacemaker so that nobody could uh, send signals to it. You know, there's this general perception that um, a lot is being done behind the scenes that we would generally put under the the category of evil, evil intent. Um, I'm certainly not going to discount the... Uh, propensity for humans to do things like that with A.I. But I think that most people that are looking at it that see, you know, the, the Arthur Clarke view of the world and, you know, think, where are we compared to 2001? Uh, um, I think that we have, on balance, a lot going on on the positive side of the ledger. Uh, we just have to be cautious about what the, the, the negative um, potential is.
1: So the piece is, you know, I'm concerned about you know humans and their, and you know, you did touch on it when you said it was about context, which is what I agree. But I, I think that we're we're breeding humans that are not adept at inductive logic and therefore not adept at. Um, you know, at understanding the contextual relations of of the support they're getting from tools in a lot of cases. Again, it, it, you know, there's a curve, of course. There, you know, there are those that that do these things and are intense analysts and do. But, uh, yes, breeding humans. Um, (laughs) I knew that was coming up. I'm I'm way ahead of you. Yes. Yes. But... What, I, what I'm really trying to understand is, how do we serve context to these people? Because I, you know, as you said, I can look at a search and I'm gonna get, you know, it's gonna basically see what I've searched before and see my geographic location and amaze me, you know, by, by you know right. serving up relevant places where I can drink. But when we get into the bigger picture, how do I serve context?
2: I think that's a different question than about, <laughs> breeding humans um about
0: eh, two sides of the a... same
2: coin <laughs> well we certainly have a an education gap that it would be nice to address um i, I think that it's always dangerous to say something like you know instinctively people will will get this uh, we've seen examples with computers being given to people that have uh no relevant training in logic or um or reasoning that do pretty well in figuring things out once they have the, the tools in front of them. I think that the context issue really is, uh, to a large extent, a um, an education thing. And in you know we, we talk a lot about uh, STEM education, but this is more fundamental than that. You know this is philosophy, logic, and reasoning that people just aren't getting. And I think the the problem with that is then the world it's always easy to, to break the world into two camps. You know, that's the easiest for us to deal with. You get people who operate on belief and all of us uh, work within certain belief systems. But you, you start to look at the technology as being good or evil or um, politically left or right based on what your belief is. And then you're, it, it's, it's self-fulfilling to, to some extent. I think the real issue here is that we need people to uh, be more critical and to look under the hood to some extent. Now, you know, I happen to like cars and I like knowing how they operate. I do think it's exciting um, and maybe a little sad that in a generation or two, uh, people won't know half of what was required to operate a car, you know, as recently as the 60s or 70s. Uh, you get into autonomous vehicles, and that's a, another complete area for uh, for AI. And you know what's the the right way to uh, to deal with autonomous vehicles. But we have too many people making bad assumptions about what's happening with the technology, and that goes back to what I was saying in terms of you know when I ask Siri um, a question, what what's the process it's going through, and how does it know how do I filter the answer based on that? And that's another area of, um, of AI, frankly. Um, if you're dealing with being presented with an answer rather than multiple answers with um, the evidence to back up why you get an answer. You know, if I say, give me the best, um, the best restaurant in Westport, Connecticut, where I am now. Siri's gonna give you uh, an answer. Google's gonna give you an answer. What, what does best mean to me? Now, if I don't know what filters are being applied, I don't, I don't know what assumptions are being made about myself, I can look at it and either think, wow, this is a great answer because, you know, you start out with something like that. If if I'm going to use a tool to to help me, I'm going to start out where I know the answer and ask and see if it gets an answer that I, I like. Uh, I would ask it about my own town before I ask it about a town where I don't know the answer. You know, I'm getting that here. So the issue is... Um, how do we tune this for an individual? And part of that, frankly, is training the individual. And this really fits uh, nicely with what's happening in healthcare and people having to take some responsibility for their healthcare. I will fully admit that with all the things that I do on a daily basis, I would rather have my doctor be responsible for a lot of this. But the older you get, the more you deal with doctors forgetting things and mixing you up with another patient, the more you realize that, You need to be involved in the process, and the doctor, if you think of the doctor as being a process within um, your healthcare system, uh, the doctor has access to some data but may forget it, whereas if you're dealing with an automated system to support it, the automated system should have access to the data and not forget it. You know, where does all this fit? I think a big part there is the person has to be educated to decide, how much they're going to depend on any search, on any system and to validate that the system is actually doing what they expect it to do.
1: So since we're off in the in in the surreal world, I'm going to going to take this opportunity to ask you a very important question. Sure. What is your favorite AI movie trope and your favorite AI themed film? If you want to throw television in, that's okay, but I'd love a film answer. Wow.
2: That's a you know that is such a tough one. I'm terrible. I'm great at certain areas of popular culture, movies. I am always so far behind the time. Um, I have three sons that would give you great answers for that. I'm still back in the two thousand one age. That's um, your favorite. That's so. your
1: favorite. I said your favorite. I didn't say yeah. I didn't say the best or yeah. most accurate.
2: There you go. Yeah, because you know it. It certainly made me think and. All these years later, uh, it still comes up in conversation. You know, do we have how? And my answer is we're working on it.
0: When we come back, it's Turntables with Adrian Bowles. In this segment of today's Quoil, it's Turntables, where our guest, Adrian Bowles, gets to ask a question of me and Howard. Adrian?
2: Thanks, Fred. Well, you know, we're recording this in October. And of course, that can only mean one thing. It means baseball. Uh, Well, it does to me anyway. So my question is, if we look at AI for decision support, which was our our topic, and how much we trust it and all the ethics involved, I'm going to ask how long do you think it's going to take before we have Major League Baseball umpires replaced by... AI devices.
0: That's a that's a great question and and very topical. Um, but I'm going to answer that in a slightly different way, I think here. And, and Howard, uh, you can you can tell me if I'm uh, just you know crazy on this. But I think the the bigger question is not the umpires. I think it's when are we going to have decisions made from uh, made from the bench by AI systems by decision systems that are looking at the game going. Here's the correct pitch. Here's the correct play. Here's the way we should be running the game. I think that there's probably a greater chance of that decision tool coming into play than there is for the uh, for the officials.
1: Actually, I I think it will come a bit more quickly, I think, than Fred does. First of all, I think I think that in the dugout, they already have significant decision support and that's only going to grow and they don't want you to see it. So it's just, you know. It's, it's just the iPad on a clipboard. That's, that's all, you know, you don't even have to see it anymore. But as far as the upfront stuff, um, it's really going to be correlated with the, the social acceptance of, of Google glass, quite honestly, and, uh, and other wearables. So as wearables become commonplace, it's going to become acceptable for umpires to wear, wear. you know, to, to adorn wearables, to augment their decisions. Um, You probably will actually initially even have, you know, have the AI umpire. You'll probably have a, you know, an additional position that coordinates those just like, you know, the the replay booth in in football. So, or just like, you know, the the upstairs guy, you'll have that initially. Somebody who's coordinating all the electronic inputs, but they're still going to, you know, baseball is more beholden to tradition than other sports. So there's still going to be Mm -hmm. a body there. You know, a body in black is it's going to take a long time before it's a robot in black.
0: Many thanks to my co-host, Howard Hecht, and to our special guest, Adrian Bowles. For more information about today's topic, or to suggest a topic for The Coil, please visit thecoilradio.com. You can follow us on Twitter, at The Coil Radio. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for The Coil. We're also available on SoundCloud for download at soundcloud.com slash thecoil. We hope you enjoyed today's edition and we hope you'll join us next week for another edition of The Coil.